Hey, Upsell fans, Helen and Greg here. Hey, what's up? What's up? We're what's turning up? turning ourselves into a Budweiser commercial. Yeah, what's up? Ribbit? Um, <laughs> no, what, what did the what did they do? Uh, no. Um, I don't know. And what not. was the thing that people used to say in the Budweiser commercials that used to be so annoying? Isn't there some annoying catchphrase what's from that? Up? Was that what's up? Yeah. I hate this. What's so up? You have to cut all of this. Yeah. <laughs> we, we should cut it all because we actually have like a real... <laughs> sexy episode of the Eater Upsell today, I think. I don't know if sexy is the right word, but... It's super sexy. It's an amazing episode. We talk about the sexiest possible things, which are immigration policy and steak. And uh, music the teenage daughters listen to. And the person who is talking to all of us about this is Jose Andres, the towering titan of a culinary figure who has 26 restaurants scattered across the United States, many of which are clustered in Washington, D.C., where he spends most of his time and where he is currently embroiled in a lawsuit with the president of the United States, which I imagine is delightful. But before we get into talking to Jose Andres, we just wanted to remind y'all that if you like the Eater Upsell, you should subscribe to it on iTunes or whatever awesome platform you choose that's not iTunes. And uh, if you while you're subscribing, if you like the show, just to rate it, you know, give it five stars or four and a half stars or four stars, stars, whatever. Give five us stars. five stars. Okay, give it five, five stars. Five is the only option. Give us a yeah. five-star rating. And, you know, write a comment about how you think that Greg and I are really charming and I definitely don't have vocal fry. Yeah, um, you can say I have vocal fry, I think. Um, or you can talk about how you like our vocals while eating fries. Um, it's a completely wide open range there. Greg, we have to do a spinoff podcast called Vocal Fry where we eat <sighs> fries. Yes, let's do it. Okay, well, okay, we're we'll get to that get... as soon as we're done talking with the chef who is sitting in our studio right now. The godlike Jose Andres. <laughs> I like how you closed your computer to punctuate that. Our guest in the Eater Upsell Studios today is who I consider to be a legend, a titan of uh, the culinary world. It's Chef Jose Andres, who has, as I just learned, twenty six restaurants. In how many, yeah. 26 restaurants in how many continents? Two continents? No, only two, only two continents, yeah. technically. Uh, only two. Yeah, but, but, but you know, I, I don't have businesses. I don't have restaurants. I have stories. You have stories. And writers, journalists, you, you express yourself through your writing or through your radio shows or podcasts, chefs. The way we have to express ourselves are through restaurants and and I tell my stories through through my restaurant. A lot of stories you got you have to tell there. Um <laughs> so at least 26 of them. At, at least 26 of them. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Or it's like variations on the same story. I don't like chapters in a novel or let's no, extend this metaphor. No, no, it's like sometimes are Sometimes it's just tell the story of my childhood. So Haleo, my Spanish tapas restaurant, uh, we have four now. It's, it's, it's my stories. My, my mother, croquetas, like every mother in Spain, that at the end of the month, when was no more food left, until my father will get the next paycheck, leftovers were king. And, and whatever chicken was left, she will make bechamel and she will make these amazing croquettes, croquetas. I don't remember any any dish from the beginning of the month when the refrigerator was full. But I remember very much every single dish from the end of the month when almost we had nothing. That's almost an homage to creativity. We were talking about women. Well, that's a homage to, to my mother feeding the family with almost no money. 
And, and that's my story at Haleo, this, the foot of the country I was born. And, and it's been a, a great road 25 years later. I keep telling that story. I opened almost 25 years ago. Well, 1993, 24, I'm not very good at math. But uh, yeah, 24, 25 years that I opened Haleo with a very big tapas menu where everybody was supposed to be sharing and where everybody told me it was crazy that in America people don't share. And actually, well, we, we, we prove a lot of people wrong in so many ways. So 25 years into your American story, um, there's a very interesting wrinkle into the story, which is that uh, you are currently being sued by the president of the United States and you sued him back. Hey, Upsell listeners, this is AP Dan. We're just going to take a quick pause because I'm going to explain the lawsuit that they are about to talk about between the president of the United States, Donald Trump, and Jose Andres and his restaurant group. What happened is in June of 2015, Trump said of Mexican immigrants, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. In August of 2015, later that summer, Jose Andres pulled out of a plan to open a restaurant in a Trump hotel property in Washington, D.C., Trump proceeded to sue the restaurant group a sum of $10 million for breach of contract and for legal fees. Andres' restaurant group defended their decision to pull out by releasing the statement, the perception that Mr. Trump's statements were anti-Hispanic made it very difficult to recruit appropriate staff for a Hispanic restaurant, to attract the requisite number of Hispanic food patrons for a profitable enterprise, and to raise capital for what was now an extraordinarily risky Spanish restaurant. They went on to countersue Trump for $8 million. Okay, back to the interview. As far as I understand, you're not a very litigious person. Is that correct? <laughs> well, I think that's my <laughs> the first time in my life I've been sued by anybody. Um, I mean, I guess from. if you're going to get sued, getting yeah. sued by the president, yeah, like, yeah. start small, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. But, you know, uh, we we did it at the time that was the right thing to do. Quite frankly, my, my official line is was business. A business decision was not was not going to be good for business. And you can use the word business in any way or form you want. Business, yeah. And so it was a business decision. And um, I try, I try to 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 come to to terms, to, to an understanding. Even I spoke to then the Republican candidate, Mr. Trump, about his comments about uh, Mexicans, about Latinos, about being rapists and and at the end of the day, it was like life is too short to, to don't respect others and make sure that others respect you. And specifically to those that have no voice. And I felt that all of those things made the business environment not the right one. And that's why, why I told him, listen, change, please help me. Help me help you. But, but I was not very successful. When you were talking to him, did you get the sense he was listening? Did you feel respected back? Did you feel... Yeah, I think I think he's, I think he's a guy to a degree. He 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 listens, and quite frankly, I I was expecting that was going to be a little change of course, but but it didn't. So today I'm very glad I did what I did. He he did what he had to do, which was swimming, and I did what I had to do. But in life, I believe that it's only one way to win, which is everybody winning and moving forward. And that's the way I've tried to run my life. I, I hope he follows his art of the deal, uh, so-called bestseller. And, and, and making a deal is sometimes uh, you, you, you bring everybody along. And you offered a, a really interesting that. third path to him over Twitter a, a couple of months ago. You tweeted that 
you sh- and I, I don't know if you expressed this formally to him also, but you suggested that the two of you drop your respective lawsuits and donate the millions of dollars that are in play here to a, a veterans charity, yeah. which to me seems like a, a very generous and reasonable third option. Yeah, well, I didn't say millions because uh, I, I say a few hundred thousands. Oh, but still a but, lot of money. But I'm very happy to, to do it either way. My partners and I, I didn't do it out of weakness, but all of the contrary. I have a very good case and I have uh, an amazing group of friends and partners that, you know, money is not an issue. So I, I make sure that he understood that this was not going to be like he's going to tear me down because I'm I'm only a cook. Like, no, no issue on money here. I can go one-on-one with him uh, as long as he wants. But at the end, what do you gain? What, what do you really gain? Uh, I want him to concentrate in running the country the best he can and trying to keep running my business the best I can and trying to keep moving America forward. And I thought that was a good idea. I, I think he knows about it. His people know about it. Let's hope that Sooner or later, we, we have a settlement, only because I don't like to be spending my life in in court. You got other stuff to do. Yeah. You know, I your relationship came with you here. <laughs> your relationship with Trump couldn't be more different than your relationship was with President Obama. Last year, he gave you the, the National Humanities Medal, which is basic. I mean, there's no higher honor. There's I can't think of a higher honor than that. So you go from, like, one of the most beloved presidents of all time, literally putting a medal around your neck to... Not yeah. that. Yeah, that's that's life. Uh, but me, I try. Uh, I'm trying to be a guy that even I have this big voice and this big body, like a whale jumping from the water in the middle of the ocean. At the end, I like to live my life like every human being, somewhere in the middle, uh, enjoying life and enjoying the the sunrises and the sunsets and enjoying the smell of coffee. In the morning, uh, the smell of fresh squeezed orange juice. I mean, those unique things that we don't give importance, but is what makes our days unbelievable sometimes, and we don't think about it. So I don't want to be running my life in any other way. I don't want to be getting the super awards or being Sue. I want to be in the middle. But it's very funny that, yeah, that I go from from being in the right size of the force to... I don't to the other side of the force. I don't know if it's the good or the bad one, but the other side of the force is kind of funny. Um, I know that before the election, you were very involved talking about ideas about immigration reform. And I'm just kind of curious, um, how has that conversation changed in the last few months for you? Um, it's or Has it changed? I mean, is well, it still? I hope you can hear me. Ah, you pulled the Superman movie. Tearing down my... Whatever you it's call beautiful. this thing. How do you yeah. call this thing it's in a, English? It's a, a vest. vest. A vest. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I forgot that name. For um, those of you listening at home, that zipper noise you yeah. just heard was literally a zipper being undone. Jose Andres yeah. tore open his vest in a I'm, Superman like, style. I'm not naked. I'm not, Clark, not naked. He's not Clark Kent anymore. <laughs> he's wearing a T-shirt that says... I, I am an immigrant. I am but, an immigrant. But I say this with the utmost respect to everybody else. Um... I think we need leaders that brings everybody together. Leaders that believe in inclusion, not in exclusion. And immigration is very much at the heart. Uh, it is true that we have a group of people in America, in different parts of America, different states, in our own cities. We don't have to go to rural America, that they feel they are not part of the American dream, that they are somehow left behind. 
that unemployment is high, that drugs are popping up all around their communities, that they seem not to have a future. And they can be minors, they can be white working men, that they are trying to do the best they can to keep moving their families forward. We can call them born Americans of many generations. And quite frankly, we need to be fixing those problems and we need to be helping those people. And then we have other people, immigrants too, that they feel sometimes that they have to work hard, that they are alone, that the system is using them. And it's some people that they are trying to make this group in the heart of America, trying to fight this other group that they are just coming to dream of a better tomorrow. And it's so sad that they are trying to, to say that the problems of this group are because these other people. And used to try to bring this kind of different civilizations into a fight, that's the wrong thing to be doing. Because actually you're not going to be fixing any other problem um, only by making different groups uh, fight. At the end of the day, America needs those immigrants because uh, go, go to any farm. Who is working on those farms? Go to the golf courses. Who is working on those golf courses? Go to many restaurants across America. Who do you think is working there? So we have 11 million undocumented that actually they are doing work that nobody else seems to be willing to do. So it's very unfair that we don't recognize those people, that they are part of the DNA of America, that wake up every morning, very early work, very hard, and that together they try to keep moving their families forward with the money they bring in. But in a way, they are moving America forward. So used to try to demonize those 11 million undocumented when the system is using them for the betterment of the system, but we don't recognize their contribution. That's unfair. And to use those 11 million undocumented to tell the guys in Ohio, Pennsylvania, or in Anacostia, Washington, D.C., that the reason they're not doing better is because those 11 million undocumented, that's unfair. That's a lack of leadership of astronomical proportions. What we need to be doing is what do we do to help those people that they feel forgotten by the system? And what do we do to bring those 11 million undocumented that they are part of the economy of America and of the spirit of America out of the shadows and into the real world? If we accomplish that, America will keep moving forward unbelievably well without making one group believe that they should hate the other because everything is wrong with their life is because these other people are taking things away from them. It's not the way the world works. Actually, one plus one, I believe, can be three. And here somebody is telling us that one plus one is minus 10. It was one of my, my favorite things. You, you wrote this, um, this great piece for Eater about your experience as an immigrant in America. And, and towards the end of it, you mentioned this idea about being an active citizen, um, which I thought was very powerful um, to think about that. I mean, this is a kind of big question or a big idea. Maybe you don't have the answer to it. But what can diners and what can restaurant owners do in that sense if you want to support immigrant rights and reform and, and those ideas right now? Well, it's so many things. But one thing and, and one thing we can do is the restaurant food community in America is, is over 10% of the GDP. It's a very big number and probably employs 12, 13, 14% of every working American. It's a very big number. So what I say with this is that the food family is a very powerful one. And I do believe that immigration reform is not a problem for us to solve, but it's an opportunity for us to seize 
I do believe America will be stronger bringing those 11 million undocumented back from the shadows. So what I will tell everybody that we need to be actively telling our Congress stop doing nonsense, talk about things that don't improve anything, and use let's push Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. We had President Bush and President Obama with majorities at the time on the Hill that they were not able to pass immigration reform. So we had two beloved presidents, respected presidents, trying to pass immigration reform, and Congress didn't let them. Why? We should be putting the pressure on Congress right now. But it's so unfair that after so many years, we still don't have immigration reform. Uh, again, uh, that's why I will ask the restaurant community to support immigration it reform. It feels like a strong move in so many ways. I mean, it makes sense from a business perspective, as you were saying, you know, the number of immigrants, both documented and undocumented, who work in the restaurant and food sector is is tremendous, I think. And especially if, when we're talking about undocumented immigrants, if we consider agriculture work part of the food sector, yeah. way more than half of all undocumented labor in the 70%, happens with food. 70, yeah. 70% probably... Uh, of immigrants undocumented that are working in many of the farms across America. And that's the reality. If we have a salad and a carrot that we give our children, it's because probably a, a undocumented. Yeah, this beautiful food that we, we grow here. Was growing it. And this is the other thing. I told you immigration reform, but let's be more precise. Why we don't have a real revolving door visa farming policy? that allows the big farmers of America to be hiring anybody they need, that they come for the three, four months of the season to pick up the okra or the cotton or the corn. And then they go back to the countries. They bring with them whatever wealth they make with us. They make America stronger. The economy keeps growing. They go back to their communities, whatever countries they come from. They make their communities stronger. They thrive. They know they can come back next year. At the end, you create this amazing economy where in the process of moving America forward, you're moving many other communities across Latin America forward. And all of a sudden, you need no walls because the system use, sustains itself. And I believe in walls. I've been saying lately, we should be building big walls. But we should be building big walls for, for schools to prepare our young people to move forward. We should be building uh, walls to create uh, community kitchens, so every children in America has a plate of food, and so they have proper education early on, and we invest at the beginning, not we throw money at the end, putting those poor children in jail because they had nothing else to do that to get into trouble. I want big walls to have hospitals that provide the right care to every American. I want big walls to keep building America in the right way. No walls that separates people, walls that separates economies, walls that only makes everybody being afraid of each other. I'm not afraid of anybody. No American should be afraid of anybody. Uh, I used to say that now immigrants coming are the bad people. Listen to me, are unfortunately bad people anywhere around the world, Americans or not. But the vast majority of the people, the 99.9% .9 of the people, they are all good, hard-working people, Americans or immigrants that came from any other country. That's the type of wall we should be investing. Walls that represent inclusion, no walls that represent exclusion. Oh, you got my vote.
Yeah, you got my vote too. You've you've spoken so much, particularly in the last few months, about immigration. You've become an extraordinary advocate for immigrants and for immigration reform. And you also do work in D.C. with hunger and local communities. I mean, have you ever thought about running for office? <laughs> you know, I if I if I had more preparation. And, and I had a university degree. Well, actually, I got one at George Washington, an honorary degree, uh, when I gave the commencement speech uh, three years ago. But that's, but I mean, that's but, more than what was that? There was that <laughs> representative or recently who it turned out that his college degree was actually a business management course that Sizzler <laughs> yeah, was, had set up for him. It was, a, it was a state senator from Iowa. Yeah. Wow. So, a, so you, a, you know, a university degree is not a requirement for, for uh, governments in the well, U.S. Well, uh, I know that. But it's only I feel like in so many ways you can be helping your community and your country. And and I know that I can be helping America like so many other Americans only trying to be a voice. Quite frankly, I, I, I don't want to be a voice. I, I only want to be cooking, uh, telling stories about food and doing TV and radio here and there and enjoying life. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's very hard. And especially a guy like me that my English is kind of a mix, I don't know, of uh, kindergarten. But the way I have to express myself, I have to try harder than anybody else. And I, I have a feeling like I had to be a voice because there's so many voiceless people out there. I didn't want to be part of this. But at the same time, I cannot be looking to the other side. You know, it's, we cannot be in the food business and there will be hungry people, and and you're charging $300 for a tasting menu in your restaurant, but across the street, somebody doesn't know what they're going to eat that day. So, so at the end, quite frankly, it's, it's, it's a very simple scenario that, that you have to work hard to make uh, uh, yourself successful and your family and to provide for the people you know and you love. But I, I do believe the new American dream should be to work as hard for yourself and the people you love, but you have to equally do the same for the others you don't know. I do believe that should be the new American dream in the 21st century. Provide for others what you dream to provide for yourself. Think I'll think about that every morning after I read the, the, the morning news, those encouraging and inspiring words. Um, so one reason I was very excited to talk with you, Chef, is there, you have a restaurant in Las Vegas that I have not been to, uh, China Poblano. Yeah. I have um, been there many times. I, you've been there, right, Helen? I love Chino Poblano. I love it's it. Chino Poblano, yes. Yep. Um, okay, I've maybe it's from conversations I've had with Helen um, among them, but that is the one restaurant that I have heard more food writers and chefs talk about as like the reason to go to Vegas than any other one. <laughs> well, I go um, every time I'm in Vegas. Yeah, like even without I, a doubt. I'm just kind of curious how the, uh, about the legacy of that restaurant as it seems to have well, evolved. You know? Yeah. I like, mean, first of all, do you, do you, did you know that Chino Poblano is all of the food writers' favorite Vegas restaurant? How do I say that sentence? Is, uh, is the favorite Vegas restaurant of uh, so many food writers? I, I know it's very beloved. Uh, uh, obviously, I have there also Jaleo and I have E, my eight-seat restaurant, which they are doing amazing. But Chino Poblano is one, you know, is... And the reason I did it was, it's a very unique reason. Uh, actually, I was super disappointed that when they do the James Beard Awards every year and they have the new restaurants of the year that we didn't make the cut. No, huge no, oversight. No, no, hold on. I mean, in the cut of the 20 that they put at the beginning. The, f I, the long list. But not the for me. List. Not right. for me. 
for my team. Pretty because correct. I believe we did such a good work. Mm -hmm. Winning and not winning, listen, in so many amazing chefs and restaurants and, and restaurant groups that they put amazing restaurants every year. So winning and all, use, you know, it's, 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 it's lack. But used to be nominated in the big list. I was so, 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 so disappointed. But anyway, I forgive all these James Beard Award judges. Uh, I forgive you. I still love you on behalf of James <laughs> Beard and honor his name. <laughs> but long story short, I do believe it's a great restaurant. The idea was... Uh, recreating uh, a moment in history where these Chinese people came 19th, 20th century to from, from California, from building the railroad and came to Mexico and they they also did work and they were about to be thrown away and then they moved deep in land and they went to this town called Mexicali where today you have two, three thousand Chinese descent Mexicans. And uh, I was like, let me make this moment in history and obviously the story of Puebla that these Chinese lady princess a slave, whatever, moved to Puebla and she ended getting married to, to the one of the richest men in Puebla. And, and that's why the, the China Poblana is the traditional dress in Puebla. So it's these connections between China and Mexico. And then was one more connection. My One of my best friends, Ambassador Jorge Guajardo, uh, a Mexican from Monterrey who studied in Georgetown, who I met 25 years ago, actually is the guy that picked me up in the airport when I landed in D.C. first time. He ended being the Mexican ambassador in China. Oh, my uh, God. That's crazy. How many times in your life your best friend ends becoming the Mexican ambassador in China at the same time that I'm thinking doing a Chinese-Mexican restaurant? It's like, it's like I couldn't organize it better if I was writing the script of a movie. I mean, movie. that's happened to me like two or three times, to be fair. <laughs> so I was in China doing research. Uh, cooking in the kitchen of the Mexican ambassador in China with Mexican and Chinese cooks, woman cooks. Uh, they were amazing. And me doing research around China and around Mexico on these restaurants. So we we didn't try to mix them. I do one half is Chinese, one half is Mexican, and then I have one or two or three dishes that is a little kiss in between, like the tacos of Dak Tong. But only few. What is Chinese, I try to do a true homage to China. And what is Mexican, I try to do a really good homage to Mexico. And they live peacefully in the same restaurant, which I love. One of the things I love about the restaurant is when you walk in, the door is in the center. And to your left is counter seating where the Chinese cook kitchen is. And to your right is counter seating where the Mexican kitchen is. And then there are, there are open tables. And I have found that... Almost without fail, I sit at the counter in front of the Chinese kitchen. <laughs> and and yeah. this is the thing. Like, I've, I've had this conversation with many friends, most of whom are food writers, because all food writers are obsessed with Gina Poblano, that, like, we have, like, religious conviction about which counter is the correct <laughs> counter to sit at. And some people are, like, very hardcore. It's like, want to watch the dumplings getting made. And some people are very hardcore. Watch the Which side do you sit on? It's funny. I was uh, there um, recently, and, and and this time I sat on the on the Chinese side. But then I need to be super diplomatic because when I leave, then the teams will talk behind and oh, chef didn't sit near us this time. So I try to <laughs> to 
to keep equally sitting in the dining room, in the Chinese bar, and in the Mexican bar. So everybody kind of is happy. I always start with my favorite drink in the whole world, which is this margarita with the salt air foam air. It's not foam, it's an air. That's my which, favorite drink in the world, too. Which is so very funny. Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, it has become like, it's very expensive because it's more work. And you will say that people will go to the traditional margarita, but right now is the number one selling item. And now this is popping up everywhere. Uh, everywhere. But I hate salt on the rim. I hate. I don't like salt I on the rim. I hate bad either. quality salt. And and when I drink a margarita, it's used. So I began drinking margarita without salt, but it's kind of having you know pasta pomodoro without tomatoes. Like give me a break. <laughs> and and then I was one day with four gin and tonics on my vacation. Uh, time in the south of Spain in Zara, and the and the and I was in the water. The very rare moments I'm in the water, and and the and the and the water was hitting the rocks and was all this beautiful uh, foam with the beautiful sea aroma, uh, and and I grabbed that foam and I began eating it. And my wife was like, "Jose, people are watching you. People are thinking, <laughs> what are you doing?" And I was screaming, and I'm like, we got it, we got it. And and then uh, I called the, the restaurant from Spain, and as soon as I came back, we be, began making this kind of air of salt that is only water, salt, a little bit of lime, and we began topping the margarita with that, and it has become a, a beloved margarita in Washington and in Vegas and in any of my other restaurants. It is my favorite margarita. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm... Overly fangirling out right now, but like I, I had it for the first time at Chino Poblano in Vegas, the salt and margarita. And I had it because someone told me, You have to go to this restaurant, you have to get the salt and margarita, everything else you can make your own choices. But these are the two things it, that are non negotiable. And it changed my life. It's my favorite. It literally is my favorite cocktail. I, 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 don't don't take, I know you, you, you were at either New York, and don't take it this in the wrong way, but if that margarita was created in Manhattan, will be on the cover of every single magazine. Oh, ha, I do not take that the wrong way. But I agree with that. this was created in Washington, it's like, oh, the world doesn't exist if it doesn't happen in NY. <laughs> and that's the reality. But that's another conversation. Now, that's for, another thing. That's that, another conversation that's another for thing another that, moment. Um, that actually well, us we, we, food writers uh, love talking that about. That this is, is part this of thing. also what's happening in this election, that the centers of power are the centers of power and everybody else is left behind uh, happens in politics happens with the economy happens also with food you journalists you have this such a responsibility to try and it's not easy it's not easy like politics because there's so many good projects happening across America beyond the big cities beyond the centers of power that we need to do more to make sure that we showcase those little towns those little villages those people that they risk everything and open in the middle of nowhere. We need to do more to make sure that those people are also known to the big public because we need to be helping rural America to also raise from being forgotten. And again, so many chefs and, and, and people trying to do little business, a bakery here, a bakery there, a bread shop here, a bread shop there. And we need to do more to make sure that those people don't feel left behind. And we need to really try to do the best we can to showcase them. That speaks to one of the inherent tensions of food as a vehicle for community and change, which is that it's 
inherently incredibly intimate, which is great, right? Like you bake a loaf of bread and that loaf of bread is, you know, only so many people can make a loaf of bread at once. The oven can only hold so many loaves. Only so many people can eat each, each individual loaf. So there's an immediate personal intimacy, but it also means that like you can't mass produce food culture. I mean, you, you can, I guess, if you're a, a giant chain restaurant with billions of dollars behind you. But what you're talking about, you know, if, if the salt air margarita is only in D.C. and in Las Vegas, how do we make someone who is not in Las Vegas and D.C. care about it? How do we say to someone, this is important, this is the greatest margarita in the world, which I believe, and you may never have it unless you get on an airplane, but you should know about it anyway. Like, how, how do you tell that story? And I, I, don't, I don't think there's an easy answer, but I think that whether we're talking about a margarita or we're talking about building community by creating local bakeries, it ultimately comes down to this question of you have to personally experience food in a way that you don't have to personally experience other things. I agree. But, but you know, journalists, writers, radio makes people dream. And, and dreaming is also a way of eating. <laughs> when you and your group, um, when you guys find a space in a city that you're in and that you like and you want to do something there and it's, you know, it's just, okay, this is, this is going to be um, one of our restaurants. What's the creative process? How do you put it together? Uh, do you check out what's already out there? Do you have this list of projects you want to do well, or... Yeah, it's all of the above. I mean, the 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 issue I have now is this, right? Is is Jose the person that I will be? I was talking with my wife the other day. I'm like, because it was this kind of restaurant for sale somewhere? I'm not gonna tell you where, in the oh. middle of nowhere. I'm I, and I told my wife, wouldn't be cool. <laughs> we buy this restaurant with a beautiful house and all the acres, <laughs> and we move there, not telling anybody, no press release, no nothing. And we began cooking. <laughs> we see who shows up. And let's see what happens. I love this idea. So so this eventually I will I will do on a boat, probably going from port to port or something like this. You show up in a, in the middle of nowhere. Oh, that's so cool. And I will do that. I know I will. And then between that dream and what I'm doing now that is more company that you run and you are more strategic. Still, I try to to address every restaurant like this story I'm telling you of the restaurant in the middle of nowhere. But the reason I want to open more restaurants is very simple. It's not greed. It's no more money. It's no more. It's no fame. It's not being rich. The reality is this: is who do you want to feed America and the world? A clown, and and I have the utmost respect for for the fast food industry. I think they do a great job for what they are, or or a chef. To me, the, the answer is very simple. <laughs> I think you want a chef. So I do believe there's so many opportunities out there that, that chefs, chef-ranked companies, food-ranked companies like me, that we can do a better job than any, anyone else. So me, I try to separate very clearly my mini bars and the places is where I spend the most time uh, of the other restaurants. But again, do I want to have 10, 20 jaleos? Yes. Why? Because I want to bring Spanish food to more people. Uh, because it's something I always wanted to do. But at the end, those 20 restaurants I know will be better than other 20 restaurants that can, can be from a so-so chain. So I have that. I think every chef has that role of stop complaining of why food sometimes can be so bad in so many parts of the world and start doing something to bring better quality food to the people of America. That's as simple as that. The problem was that everybody says that America doesn't get enough vegetables and fruits. 
uh, USDA, the Department of Agriculture, recommends right now in my plate that America should be eating 50% at least of their diet of vegetables and fruits. But the USDA only puts 1% of their budget to help America eat vegetables and fruits. So it's a very big disconnect. So me, I stopped going to this Congress that everybody claps like seals, me first, when we <laughs> say something amazing, let's bring more vegetables <laughs> and fruits to America. Everybody claps. And then we go to our homes, Woo-hoo. nothing happened. Beefsteak to me was more like, I'm going to stop clapping and I'm going to try to do something. Even if I fell miserably, and uh, at least I try. And I at least I will learn something and I hope I will give a glimpse of what it could be to other young people that one day they will have even a better idea of how we can do vegetables and fruits sexy again. So beefsteak is my real try on trying to bring true vegetables cooked in front of you uh, to the vast majority as Americans I can reach. So far again, we have six. First one was in George Washington University, my alma mater now. <laughs> yeah. But we are at <laughs> Penn, UPenn. Uh, but I, I would love to be like Facebook, like they went from, from Cambridge uh, all the way to, you know, that was Stanford. Uh, oh, so, that's interesting model, yeah. So should I be near Cambridge? Uh-huh. Because I've been teaching <laughs> there the, the physics class uh, for undergrads. And yes, do I want to be in Stanford? Yes. Do I want to be in every university in America? Yes. Why? Because it's a, a very natural fit. So I, I dream that in five years we'll have at least 100 beefsteaks. At least I dream of that. I am getting myself ready to achieve that. I have the best team a chef can put together to do that. I had dinner more than a month ago. It was actually, it was the week before the presidential inauguration at Minibar in D.C. And the final savory course, like the the meal builds to a crescendo. And, you know, if you go through the tasting menu experience at most places, usually the last savory course before you move into the pre-dessert section of the evening is a hunk of meat. It'll be like, usually beef or like venison or something. And at Minibar, the final savory course was a cabbage leaf. It was brilliant. I mean, it was amazing. It was a cabbage leaf that had been painted in in cow fat, in suet and mm. cow fat, and it was the stakiest yeah. cabbage leaf I've ever had. But, I mean, it was great. It was, all right, well, here's uh, a vegetable. You know, uh, we are obsessed with meat. I am obsessed with meat. I am a big chunk of meat on two legs. <laughs> but think about it for a second. Uh, and I have a meat restaurant, Bazaar, in Las Vegas, which which I don't want to brag about it, but it's super cool and it's doing amazing and it's like this homage to 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 to, to fire and, and meat. I'm going to book a trip to Vegas just to eat at your yeah, restaurant. But this one you're going to love it. Yeah. Baby pigs like nowhere. But, but ending, when you put a piece of meat in your mouth, uh, let's say it's the best meat in the world, which is no easy, but imagine. Uh, the first five seconds, you put the piece in your mouth, the smokiness of the charcoal, the uses that began f- floating all around your your tongue, your mouth, your body is kind of, oh my God, what's going on? This is so good. But only last five seconds. In the, in the moment those uses disappear, you have this big brown piece of, I don't know what, fibers and other things that you're going to have to be biting to try to break it into small pieces for the next 30 seconds of your life. And you are there, 
munching a piece of ugly, ugly color, ugly everything, because you have to put it inside your stomach. And me, I'm wondering why I am spending 30 seconds of my life trying to break a piece of tasteless piece of S-H-I-T to try to put into my stomach. It's a waste of my life. 30 seconds is a lot of seconds for a bite. Imagine when you have to have 20 bites to multiply 20 bites for 30 seconds of tasteless moment. I am not living my life to have so many minutes, hours, probably days at the end of your lifetime of munching something so tasteless. So we, I'm looking for the moment of the use, the five seconds. I'm trying to make sure that people don't spend so many hours of their lives, days of their lives, munching something so tasteless. So that's the way I try to approach meat. And that's why you will get a dish like this, that we are bringing you meat aromas and meat flavors, but that sometimes I don't want to waste your precious life because you are putting your life in my hands. So I do, my best moment is when I get a steak sometimes and I use the steak with my hands and I take all the blood then I put it in a glass. Then I drink it. Yes, Dracula was a smart man. To a degree, yes. Was he drinking from the wrong source? Yeah, I mean, yeah, humans shouldn't be drinking other humans, obviously. But in this case, the, the black in the glass, warm, with a little bit of salt. And that, those four seconds you're, you're drinking the, the, the juice of the meat. That's the way we should be eating meat. If we do that with a carrot, and the carrot juice is amazing, why we cannot do this with a piece of meat? Mm. Amazingness is what we need to be always looking for. Yeah. You just completely changed my person. I think neither Greg nor I will ever eat a bite of steak. I mean, all the things you were just describing about a steak are my favorite parts of the steak. And the things that you were describing is not the best parts or definitely not the best. That did. I mean, that whole that whole thing took. I mean, you, you were starting out with this incredible poetic description of meat. And I was thinking to myself, God, this is so seductive and beautiful. And then it took that sharp left turn. And I mean, man, yeah, like you took me on an emotional I am journey. I'm like so hungry now thinking about all this stuff. <laughs> we need to start um, eating before we record yeah. these episodes. I think like... I, although, I don't know. This All this all this talk might, even on a full yeah. stomach, might Why be Why I didn't hungry. bring a ham with me, an Iberico yeah. ham or something? I know. We should have required that of you. Yeah, come, you should. Come in wielding a ham. Yeah. I, I would, well, can, I mean, you, you can guys have are cans in of food. LA. It wouldn't really do me much good. To have the ham, right? But I well, can look at your ham. You can and dangle feel it sad. in front of the camera. Um, so I think we've come to the part of the show that we like to call the lightning round. For the lightning round, we have a special guest question asker who's going to throw a few questions at you that you can answer however you like. Um, it's someone who I think you might know. Hey, Jose. This is Missy Frederick. I'm the associate city editor here at Eater, and I used to run our DC site. And I have a couple fun questions for you. Wow. Hi, Missy. <laughs> Missy, I bet you have some questions for Jose Andres. If travelers only had time to hit up one bar in Barcelona, where should they go? I will go to mm, Bodega 1900 of my friend Albert Adria. It's kind of it's kind of very difficult to explain because it's not really a bar. I don't know what it is really, but. It's the vermouth hour before going lunch or dinner that you will go and you will have a, 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 a little vermouth uh, with a little, little bit of lemon peel, maybe soda water, ice, and you will have a little cockle, a can of mussels in escabeche. That, that would be a great place. 
that would be a great quick place to go. There is a picture of you on the wall at Bodega 1900 in Barcelona. Saying, when I was do not serve this man last or? year. <laughs> no, I was in Barcelona about a year ago, and and my husband and I ate dinner there. It was our it was one of the best meals of our of our whole trip. And our table, we were tucked in a little table in the back corner, right underneath a photograph of a, a very young group of men, one of whom looks yeah, awfully was like you. 1985, 1986. Yeah. Uh, there was yeah, Albert was there. Uh, the, I forgot his name, Yamamoto, I think. But the first Japanese that ever worked at El Bulli. I mean, was the the good Charlie Trotter. The good old picture. times. The good old times. Yeah, it's an amazing photo. I like that recommendation because I've been there, so it validates my choices. All right, Missy, what's your next question? What's your favorite tapas dish? My favorite tapas dish will be two answers. One, the last one I ate. <laughs> regardless of what it is. Regardless of what it is. But then I will say um, gambas al ajillo. It's like, it's like the ultimate. I, I, I think I will be happy used to have a little place that the only thing it does is gambas al ajillo. So that's the, the shrimp, right? The shrimp. The, the, the shrimp with garlic. Uh, shrimp, S-H-R-I-M-P. Uh, I mean, who, who was the English guy that put S-H and R together? I mean, you have it's a difficult shrimp. It, 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 like, uh, I'm gonna, uh, we'll find you him. know, non-English speakers, I'm gonna fuck up your pronunciation. It's shrimp. Great. <laughs> like, that was a psycho, that guy. I mean, really. I hope it was no Shakespeare. <laughs> a proud bastard. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so Missy, uh, you got another question for, for Jose? In what way is the kitchen atmosphere different here than it is in Spain? Wow. Well, I've been long time away from Spain. I know where I come from, but I know where I belong. So I'm not an expert on what's happening in the kitchens in Spain, even I spend a lot of time. I don't know. I, I The difference will be that, you know, everybody in Spain works two shifts. Uh, they work probably longer hours than even we work in America. They work a.m. and they work the p.m. And I think the best moment when you do that a.m. p.m. thing is that uh, between um, sometimes many restaurants, the family meal that happens is almost like like sacred. And well in the kitchen, well somewhere in the back of the restaurant, well in the dining room, that moment that everybody really sits together and, and, and they make the family meal together, that usually is something like brings everybody together in a very powerful way. In America, it happens also in, in a lot of places. But in Spain, I will say this is almost like every place you will see before the shift or after the, the AM shift, people always sitting together and having the 20, 30 minutes of having, uh, having one meal together. And this, this is very, very, a very powerful moment. That's awesome. All right, right, uh, Missy, do you have any more for us? In a casino, what's your game of choice? Poker, I never lose. Sorry, so don't sit next to me or you will lose. You're good at it. Do you ever play it in Vegas when you go there? Yeah, I play sometimes. Uh, I play, uh, you know, after the restaurants close. (laughs) uh, I don't want to go to sleep. And I have a lot of friends that they are professional poker players. But I like poker. But I like poker to have fun. So I always try to be with people I know. So yeah. I always try to go with a lot of people because to me it's not about losing money. Listen, we work very hard to be losing money. 
And if you're going to lose, at least lose to a friend that you know the guy is going to enjoy it. Do you have a like a, a secret regular poker game with other really famous chefs? I, have, I love uh, this mental picture that I'm creating right now of just like a smoky table. It's you and no, Mario. <laughs> no, but but uh, but I I play a lot uh, when when we um, open uh, the first SLS and with uh, my boy, uh, uh, you know, in the old days, Anne Nasarian and all his team and all my team. Even if we will be working 16, 18 hours a day to try to open the hotel and the restaurants and everything, they will. Always give me the big room, not because I was the chef, but because I will be hosting the big poker game that everybody will come. Gin and tonics will become flowing. Uh, the cigar, one or two, will start being lighted and will start playing poker. And that was a great moment. That was also... And we'll play often. Uh, we op- we play when, when we open LA. We play when we open Miami. And more often than not, we'll see the sun... The sunrise, and we'll be going somewhere to have, you know, depends the city we are. We will be going for tacos in LA, or, or we will be going for a sandwich cubano in Miami, or we, you know, the, depends the place we will be. We will always end playing poker, but going somewhere to eat, and then finally go to bed very, very, very late in the morning or very early in the morning. Sounds like you can, you can be a fun guy to work for then. Uh, <laughs> um, Missy, do we have another question? Missy, I love you. I cannot believe it. you don't ask me so many questions when I'm with you there in Washington. Okay, throw me the question. <laughs> throw me the question. I see you. You are in a in a throwing questions mode to me. Go ahead. What music do you listen to to pump yourself up? I, uh, you know, it's so much great music out there. I don't keep up anymore. I have three daughters that they they everybody has their favorites. I I, I listen to a lot of different bands. Um, What's the uh, age range um, of the daughters? <laughs> uh, well, uh, um, you know, my three daughters, Carlota, Inés, and Lucia, 18th, 15th, and 12th. This is a terrible question Te- to ask teenagers. a father in, yeah. live, in live radio. It's good luck I remember their ages and their names. <laughs> uh, you know, I will be crucified. Um, we can edit but, it out if it turns out you're wrong. Uh, we'll just uh, go no, pretend no. this Don't edit. Happen. Don't edit. Don't even dare to edit. I did it. I'm so proud. I love my daughter. So do you listen to a lot of like Ed Sheeran? I I, I think, you know, I love hip hop. Uh, I love uh, whatever you like. You know, I I love, I love, I love, I love hip hop rap. I love, I love classic music. I love, you know, I mean, Beyonce, her last, Lemonette, uh, her last, her her, her last work was unbelievable. You know, was so sad that she didn't won uh, the big Grammy, but, but. But, you know, but Adele is great, too. So it's I'm very, very, very open in my my music. Wait, but the question was, what do you listen to to get pumped up? And you answered Adele. Well, that seems like a stretch. But we need to understand that that pump up doesn't need that you are crazy and excited and jumping. Sometimes you can be pump up listening to the beautiful rhythm of the waves hitting the beach is is different ways to be pumped up. Sometimes when when you can, I am a guy that I can be pumped up with very very high rhythm music, but I can be pumped up with a very low. I, I will not say low energy. It's only a different type of energy. Brings energy from within. You 
of energy you didn't even know you had. Not everything has to be like like noisy and with big rhythm and moving quick. It's also ways to pump yourself up with very slow rhythms. That's the true control of the force, my friend. Oh my God. <laughs> Not only when everything is nutty, but when things can be also calm and you are able to have a tear because it's touching your heart. And sometimes your heart, maybe with that very low, slow music, it's pumping even harder. So it's many ways to pump yourself up. Not everything has to be noisy. Uh, sometimes we, 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 it's a lot of noise and not a lot of music. Uh, be within that music can be the music with high rhythm, but can be the music with low rhythm. To me, they are as powerful. And it's always a moment for everything. I am cooking sometimes and I need music that is low and mellow and that has a very unique rhythm. This is a very amazing way to pump yourself up for the dish you are cooking. Uh, it's almost like matrix. It's, you're trying to control the tempo. Not necessarily the high tempo is more powerful than the low tempo. They are different at every moment, and you have to be able to take with you the best out of every moment. Well, on that note, Chef, just want to thank you so much for coming on the Eater Upsell. I know that was poetry. I think even if Missy had any more questions, we couldn't take them because... The mic has been dropped. Mic drop. Beautiful. Boom. <laughs> Chef, where can we find your? Missy, your... I see you in DC. Margaritas on me. Bye. I'm sorry, I cannot buy margaritas. Food writers are like politicians; they cannot be bought. That's true. That's true. And Chef, on Twitter, we can find you at your at Chef Jose Andres. At Chef Jose Andres, I am um, there. I'm in Instagram um, sometimes too. I am, um, you know, I'm around, I'm around, uh, I'm around social media here and there. You're uh, amazing at social media. You're, you're a fantastic no, tweeter. No, I mean, really. I love your Twitter account. Yeah. yeah. Strong indoors. Uh, but Instagram lately more and more. Okay. I, I like Instagram too, but Twitter I love too. And and what's the new thing? Uh, snaps? No, what? Snapchat. Snapchat. I'm still trying to understand how that hell I think, works. I think people are stop, don't have to use it anymore. I don't know. Ask oh. your daughters. I'm sure they know. Oh, my God. You know, I'm going to give my phone to everybody, and and, and, <laughs> and then you call me, or I call you, and, and that should be more direct, yeah, but I'm lost. Anyway, I see you in Twitter, people. <laughs> Twitter. Oh All right. Well, you can find Jose Andres on Twitter or at any of his, what was that, number 342 restaurants? 20, uh, 26, me. right? The Mimin. The Mimin. <laughs> at any of his many restaurants, including the ones that sell the salt air margarita, my favorite cocktail of all time. Thank you for joining us on the Eater Upsell. Yeah, thanks. Bye. And if you're not already subscribed to the Eater Upsell, though of course you are, right? Because you love me and Greg and you want us to be happy, you can subscribe by hitting the subscribe button and tell your friends about it. Make sure everybody listens. Jose Andres has good things to say. Everyone should hear them. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yay. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morbido. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Baculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulrich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are. <laughs>